I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 27th, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about the final four of South Carolina, North Carolina, Gonzaga, and Oregon, the buzzer beater that got UNC past Kentucky, and the accumulation of texts on Florida guard Chris Chioza's phone. We'll also discuss the U.S. women's hockey team's move to boycott the upcoming world championships as part of a fight for an increase in wages and benefits and the U.S. Hockey Federation's failed attempt to get high school players to compete in their place. And Slate's Ben Mathis-Lilly will join us for a conversation about his story on Fox Sports 1. It's home of the likes of Skip Bayless, Colin Cowherd, and Jason Whitlock. And it's a network that's betting on winning viewers by providing sports fans with every possible opinion and its exact opposite. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and a man who finished tied for first place in Pesca Jeopardy with zero dollars. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. I was very proud of that. I did well. With us here in our DC studio, also tied for the lead in Pesca Jeopardy with zero dollars, it's Jane Coaston. She's a politics writer with MTV, a graduate of the University of Michigan, and someone who inquired on Twitter two weeks before Jim Harbaugh was hired as Michigan's football coach. Has anyone been driven to murder by a college football coaching search? Just wondering for a friend. Did you, you know, ever find the answer? Fortunately, not. It, everyone in that college that so that search came dangerously close to some places we shouldn't go. Like we we went to the the great beyond, and we came back. Apparently, we're going to talk about Jim Harbaugh later. I'm going to find a way to uh, smuggle him into this week's podcast. Um, we launched a survey last week, and we got a lot of responses. I was surprised by how many. Maybe a lot I of good responses. Um, go to slate.com slash survey. We still retain the rights to that URL. No other Slate surveys have come into existence in the last week. Um, and let us know what you think about the show and what you'd like us to do with the show. Um, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to talk about the continued unemployment of erstwhile 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick and how much that unemployment has to do with his refusal even to stand for the national anthem during the NFL season just passed. Join Slate Plus to 
find out the answer to this and other burning questions. It's just $49 a year, and you'll get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcast every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. On Sunday night in Memphis, it took Kentucky and North Carolina 39 minutes and 59.7 seconds to decide which team would join Gonzaga, Oregon, and South Carolina in the final four. In the closing moments, UNC was up three with Justin Jackson at the free throw line for one and one. Here is how the rest of the game sounded, courtesy of Gary Cohen on Westwood One Radio, because I like him and I don't like Jim Nance. Gary Cohen, take it away. North Carolina up three, 14.7. The first one off the back rim, no good. Rebound, Fox, 13 seconds. Here comes Briscoe. Briscoe veering right, hands off to Muff, turns, fires the three. Good! The game is tied. Seven seconds to go. Here comes Pinson down the center of the floor. Pinson penetrates, hands to May, 18-footer. Good! With three-tenths of a second to go, North Carolina leads. Luke May from just inside the left arm. So that was awesome. Uh, a few days earlier, Wisconsin's Zach Showalter and Florida's Chris Chiesa had exchanged nearly identical leaping, leaning three-pointers to send their Sweet 16 game into overtime and uh, to win at the buzzer, respectively. After the game, Chiesa showed reporters his phone, and he'd received more texts in the three minutes after his shot went in than I think I've received collectively in my entire lifetime. And that led me to wonder if there's anything I could ever do to get everyone I know to text me at exactly the same time. And the answer I came up with was probably nothing that did not involve a helicopter chase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I'd say so. Like, I think at this point it's either sports or you'd have to have, like, do you remember when those llamas ran away? You'd have to be (laughs) one of the llamas. I I do remember when the llamas ran away. Joss is your little llama like. I can see that. that Like if you and a llama just went sprinting off into the distance, then a lot of people would text you. So I have a lot of projects to work on this week. That's that's one of them. I like that idea. The Chioza and Showalter buzzer beaters, I thought, were better. It was almost like hilariously similar to the buzzer beater that you shoot growing up in the proverbial driveway. Like I had never seen a buzzer beater that was like such the platonic ideal of a buzzer beater. Right. As those. I think also because Showalter was falling down at the time. Like he, there were like three seconds left. His defender was on top of him and he somehow managed while falling forward to hit a buzzer beater, which I think that that's the moment where you realize like, oh, these kids have practiced this exact scenario so many times. And I think that that's, there are many times where you're like, oh, these are college kids. And I think that's one. And I think Kennedy Meeks screwing up the inbounds pass like three times, <laughs> which that was the moment where I was like, oh, this is what I would do. Like, this is exactly how I would handle the situation is to not be able to do it at all and fail. And the Chioza one, though, was was platonic because it was so it was so perfect. Right. He took off from behind the three-point line and he shot it. He basically could have dunked it. I mean, he was that close, it seemed, to the basket after he took off. But he was one of the classic from behind the three-point line dunks, dunks that, yeah. we've, that we've come. We've to never enjoy. seen a three-point dunk, have we? And it's funny because um, I remember seeing on Twitter right after that, like there really isn't anything Wisconsin could have done because if you foul on a three-point attempt. That's at, what Jane Coaston would have done. <laughs> I, <laughs> so, that's hard. What, I, so hard. So hard. I think that. Wisconsin would have set itself on fire. Like, I honestly think that that ending is as good as it could have possibly been for both sides in terms of just, like, what could have resulted. Because I, I honestly, like, Nigel Hayes was on him, and it was, like, keeping his hands up, and there's nothing, right. there's no, there's nothing to do. I mean, the parallel with the, the, the end of the UNC-Kentucky game was very similar to the end of the championship game last year, too. Um, a screen set up. A drop-off pass and a shot that goes in. I mean, that was terrifically exciting and and well-executed. I mean, it looks like chaos with seven seconds to go, but clearly from what uh, Roy Williams, the UNC coach, said after the game and what the players said, too, this is something that they prepare for. I mean, this is is exactly the kind of play that they are aware of. They're aware of space. They're aware of where their teammate's going to be, and their teammate is aware of where he needs to be in order to receive a pass to take a shot like that. And also the fact that Luke May had the presence of mind to just not think about it. And he was saying afterwards, like, you know, oh, I, just I like do that th- presence of mind not to think mm-hmm. it, that that's, <laughs> I think, the essential of 
playing high-level sports. It was mindless thinking. Yeah, you just, whatever, just turn it off. Because I think that that's the thing you see, um, you know, that's, I was talking to my my spouse about this, that, like, that's why the, the beginning of any Super Bowl or the beginning of any title game is so bad because everyone is thinking so hard. And so you saw that even in this UNC-Kentucky game where, like, the first 10 minutes, you're just like, guys, stop <laughs> it. Just stop it. So those two teams played during the regular season, and Marcus Monk scored 47, one of the best college performances in my recent memory, at least. And in this game, Monk didn't do very much at all until making those two crazy threes in the last minute. I think you're right. It's because he really had no other choice and stopped thinking, and his amazing skill kicked in. But it was a little disappointing Stefan, you mentioned before we went on there that you were sad that uh, Kentucky didn't win, that Fox and Monk have been so great during the tournament and really all year, and that, you know, Fox got two fouls in the first half and barely played. Like, that those guys just did not yeah. really and show Calipari how good they are. And, and John Calipari, the Kentucky coach, complained about it after the game that, you know, my players were getting – you know, he was not getting the calls. He was complaining about the refing. You know, and I hope this doesn't, but it will, uh, reignite the, the what is a basketball program conversation. Um, UNC doesn't do one and dones. Calipari has had 18 players – spend one season with Kentucky before going to the NBA since 2009 when, when Calipari got there. Um, UNC, no one-and-done players since Brandon Wright in 2007. That was the first year that the NBA required uh, got rid of the, the high school uh, players going straight to, to the league. Yeah, um, They started two seniors and three juniors, UNC did this year. They all played in the championship game last year. And they talk a lot about, you know, we are a program. And Roy Williams talks about how he wants to, players to come and feel like it is home and create a community, um, which, of course, is largely bullshit because of what the NCAA does and how it restricts these athletes from um, from from gaining benefits from playing college basketball. I saw a guy tweeted last night, a, a local reporter in Carolina, apparently talked to Theo Pinson of the Tar Heels after the game, and Pinson apparently said, hell of a game. We made a lot of money for the NCAA today. <laughs> That's awesome. And he had the winning uh, assist. Yeah. And the best quote. Yeah. 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 I think everyone's gotten so used to the one-and-done rule, especially when you start thinking about players who should st technically still be in college or would technically still be in college, and how when it comes to UNC, like, I was like, Kennedy Meeks has been there for just generations. And I'm like, oh, no. I, I wanted to play this clip for you guys and get your thoughts. Um, De'Aaron Fox, after the game, responding to the allegation, I mean, according to him, at least proffered by many, that Kentucky's freshmen, one-and-done players, didn't really care about the outcome of the season because they were going straight to the NBA. It was tough. You know, uh, we had a hell of a season. You know, we went through that stretch and we lost those games. And everybody, tried, everybody talked about, you know, how we looked like we didn't care. And, you know, this isn't the locker room that looked like the guys don't care. <laughs> I love my brothers, man. So that was kind of hard hard to watch, but it's exactly why we love the NCAA tournament or right. one of the reasons. Mm -hmm. Jane, you were um, watching the game last night, Mississippi State and Baylor, yeah. and the women's tournament where Morgan William scored 41 points. It was on the anniversary of her father's death, and it was incredibly emotional to see that performance in her interview right. afterwards. Like she could not speak. All she kept saying was like, this is for my dad. And it just, it's one of those moments where I think that um, I love the NCAA tournament on both sides because it really introduces the vagaries of reality where a lot of times if you're watching like a really good NBA team or a really good NBA game, I think you saw that during like the NBA finals last year, we were just like, these are not human beings like you see the emotions of humans but not quite the actions of humans and then a lot of times when you're watching the ncaa tournament like you see people screw up really obviously like you see someone like you know you see a game get settled um that uh you it was unc arkansas where there was like a, a what should have been a travel but wasn't a travel it wasn't called or something like that but you just see like hu humanness and reality intervening in a way that you don't really see in professional sports and i thought that like, um, for those of you who had a chance to watch the Mississippi State Baylor game last night was ridiculous. It went into overtime. Um, you know, Morgan William is five foot five. She's a point guard. I think she'd had earlier in the tournament she'd had like eleven points combined, and then just went 
off yesterday. Well, the thing that I thought of watching Fox and then watching Morgan William the interview uh, after that game was that it was exploitative, but not in the way that the NCAA is exploitative. It was exploitative in the way that television is exploitative in the way at the end of all these games, they linger on the shots of the losing team crying. And I guess in this case with Maureen William on the, the, you know, the winning player crying and it's a television show. And that I think drives home for me more the injustice of these players not getting Mm -hmm. compensated because they're the, stars of a multi-billion dollar TV show that we all love to watch. And I think that um, part of that is also because if you, if you're a fan of Kentucky or UNC or a lot of college basketball programs, you are probably a much bigger fan of that than you are of any NBA program. And you treat those players in your head kind of like they are NBA level players. And so, you know, I would never want to get into the mentions or something like that of any, like, you know, Chris Chioza, like, or any of these players. I would never want to just be like, I would never want to be them on the internet because people treat them like they are NBA players. Or like, you know, you know those Kentucky players are probably getting from the big blue nation. Like, they are probably getting so much backlash because they lost a game. And yet, because I think that they're lifted up to this level where they're expected to be like NBA players, but they're not. And they don't have that level of responsibility. And like you said, they're not compensated for this. They're doing this because they eventually want to be compensated. But right now they're doing this in effect for sort of free. All right. Any thoughts on South Carolina, Oregon, besides the fact that they have an old guy playing for them? So I like this time of year because it forces me to sort of reconcile how these programs are assembled and take a little bit closer look. And Gonzaga is really interesting. I mean, Mark Few, um, Gonzaga's made the tournament, what, 19 years in a row now? Mark Few's been there since 1999. The way he's assembled this team is different, though. A lot of transfers from high-profile programs. And as you start to read the, the, the backstories on the players and how they ended up there, you again realize, like, the inequities that are baked into the NCAA system. I mean, Nigel Williams-Goss left the University of Washington because there was tremendous turnover on the staff and players leaving left and right. Jonathan Williams left Missouri um, because the coaches who recruited him split and he didn't like the new coach. He stuck it out for one year. And then when he decided to transfer, Missouri wouldn't let him transfer to any SEC or Big 12 school plus Arizona and Illinois, 26 schools in all. And I'm getting this information. I read a terrific story in the student newspaper, the Gonzaga Bulletin, where they talked to the, the players about, about their transfer situations. Um, so F- Mark Few recognized sort of the inefficiencies in the system. He brings in transfers. He recruits overseas. There are, there are players from, J- from Japan, Denmark, Poland on this roster. Um, and you know, it's, it, again, it's sort of it's how do you succeed in a system where North Carolina has four McDonald's All-Americans on its roster and Gonzaga has had four in the history of its of its program, three of them transfers. Right. And I think it's it's going to be interesting because it's a Final Four with three first-time coaches making it and then three programs who, you know, Oregon won the national championship in 1939 and that's the last thing they did. They beat Ohio State when they were the yeah. wandering webfoots, which I think <laughs> they should go back to. But you've got these three programs and North Carolina. And so I think with, you know, I was talking about this yesterday, but I think that if you're a North Carolina fan, you kind of see that Elite Eight game as being your national title game. Like that's like if you did that, then you can come into this Final Four, especially because they're going to play Oregon, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's I, – I um, someone was talking about this online that like if you're a CBS executive, if it somehow turns into a South Carolina-Oregon national championship game, you're just going to like wander into the sea. Now, I disagree because I think that sounds awesome. Both teams – Oregon has been tremendous and I say that as a Michigan fan who basically I spent the entire time – uh, the entire weekend being like, well, by the transitive property, yeah, that means we're nice. about right. 10 points better than Kansas. Um, but I think that, you know, it's it's really cool to have – you know, I don't – I think a lot of people think that, oh, like, the Blue Bloods will attract more, like, more viewers. But honestly, like, you know, I had – I think my um, national championship was, like, UCLA um, – I think, like, UCLA, Kansas or something like that. And I'm like, actually, I don't really want to watch that. Like, that sounds – I don't want to watch Lonzo Ball do anything. 
Hard disagree. But let's uh, <laughs> let's move on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The 2017 Ice Hockey Women's World Championship is set to begin in Plymouth, Michigan later this week. And as of this moment, the three-time defending world champions from the United States are not planning to be there. So we're recording this on Monday morning. There is a vote by the USA Hockey Board of Directors that is happening on Monday. So by the time you hear this, the conditions on the ground may have changed. Um, But here's the backstory. A couple weeks ago, the captain of the team, Megan Duggan, said in a statement that she and her teammates were asking for a living wage and for USA Hockey to fully support its programs for women and girls and stop treating us like an afterthought. Uh, Her teammate, Jocelyn Lamoureux-Davidson, said this was the culmination of trying to negotiate for 14 months and getting nowhere. Going public has been um, a pretty brilliant strategic move by uh, USA Women's Hockey. They've gotten support from the players' unions of essentially every other sport in existence. And um, the message has been received by, I think, also pretty much every woman who plays hockey in the United States because the Federation has tried to recruit down to the high school level players to take the place of the national team at the world championships. And I think they've gotten not a single person to say that they would play in the championship. Yeah. And it's been, yeah, they're not really doing a great job right now, especially when it just, it gets, it's getting to the point that people have been joking that like, you know, I played rec league like three years ago and I'm I'm expecting to get an email pretty (laughs) soon. Just being like, so are you busy then? No, it's, um, we scouted you. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting also because I think part of the impetus here is because USA women's hockey has been so good for so long. And I think it's a similar – Three straight world championships. Exactly. And it's a similar situation to the – and I think that that's why you're seeing so much support uh, support coming from the U.S. women's national soccer team is because they're in a similar situation of just being massively better than their male counterparts. But – not receiving near like the compensation is nowhere near equal and just the level like the level of just respect that they're getting from their own kind of organization is just minimal i was stunned by one fact which was that in the six months leading up to the olympics they get a thousand dollars a month that's how much the players on the women's nationalized hockey team have been paid i mean that's outrageous And so, yes, going public was a tremendously smart idea. But what is really interesting to me is how this has coalesced into something much bigger than women's ice hockey, which for all of the success of the U.S. women and their Canadian counterparts, who are by far and away the two best teams in the world, this is not a sport that has had the kind of recognition or attention or generated the kind of revenue or TV audiences that the women's national soccer team has for the last 20 years. Um, so for this to be the fulcrum for a movement is kind of amazing to have the National Hockey League Players Association, the National Football League Players Association, Major League Baseball Players Association come out in support of these women to me, suggests that this is a turning point in the way that the public and prominent athletes choose to support each other in terms of fighting for better rights for women's athletes. So the counterargument here, as always, is the idea that women's hockey, the U.S. women's hockey doesn't generate revenue, doesn't generate the revenue that the men's game does. But if you look at the um, CNN Money had a story about the different perks offered. And at the World Championships, the men are like allowed to bring guests and the women are not allowed to bring guests. Mm-hmm. And so even if you're going to take the most hardline view that says, I don't believe in equal pay because it should just be strictly about how much money you generate, capitalism, raw. It's like there's 
fairness issue that goes far beyond money. And it's not even the fairness issue in terms of perks for the for the players at the highest level. I mean, I made this argument when we discussed the U.S. women's soccer team's dispute um, over their contract. USA Hockey is a governing body for this sport in the United States. It is a nonprofit. The not goal- for men's hockey. It is a, it is the goal. Hockey. The goal of USA Hockey is to develop the sport, not men's hockey, not women's hockey. I argued in women's soccer, given their partic- participation numbers and their success, um, and the fan interest, and how much more money the men make professionally than the women in soccer, and even split is not unreasonable. The idea here is to lift everybody up, to make the United States a better hockey country, to make the United States a better soccer country. Um, You could argue that you should spend more on women's ice hockey because it has been so underserved for so long compared to men's hockey. USA Hockey has a men's development program. It's called high school hockey and peewee hockey and college hockey and an established minor league hockey system. Right. And I think that, you know, I... I really agree with that point because if the, you know, when you see the numbers, especially with how not just programming for women at this level, but the program for girls, where at the point, like who, girls and boys, if you're 11 years old, no one should be taking the like, well, how much money are you bringing in argument? Because, you know, who cares? And at that, like, those programs should be equal because at a certain point, like, it's not about revenue at all. It's about the fact that if you're like an 11-year-old girl playing pond hockey in Minnesota or an 11-year-old boy playing pond hockey in Minnesota, you should have access to the same opportunities. But this is the bigger point. I mean, and let's not obsess on this individual sport, this one sport. I mean, the bigger point here is that in 2017, we are still talking about Title IX issues. The National Women's Law Center is still filing lawsuits against school districts to get girls equal opportunity on field times and equipment and locker rooms. I mean, I'll give you an example from my daughter's high school. Last fall, she's on the field hockey team. Their game ends. They want to go into their locker room to get their their shit out of their lockers. There's a visiting JV football team changing for the game that's going to happen right afterward. So they're standing outside. So waiting for 60 10th grade boys to come out of the locker room. I mean, this is a much larger equity issue. And what the U.S. women's fight here suggests is that these issues are unresolved. Exactly. And I think, you know, I played in high school. I went to an all-girls school. And yet you still had moments where if you were playing at someone else's school, you'd still have moments where I'm like, I go to an all-girls school and I still have to wait for boys to do something. Right. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, I played lacrosse and field hockey because I went to an all-girls school. And that's what you do by law. But, you know, you go to, you know, the big co-ed public high school to play a game or something like that. And you're still waiting for, like, the freshman football team practice to finish. And you're just like, come on. This is ridiculous. Right. I mean, the District of Columbia, um, the D.C. was sued for uh, in, a, in an equal employment opportunity case because of this very issue about high school girls having to travel 45 minutes to practice where the boys get to walk next door and practice. So back as to a, hockey. Well, as I mentioned, let's let's end here. Like, as I mentioned at the top of the segment, it sort of seems like this is trending towards a deal getting made and there might even be one by the time. This podcast is released on Monday evening. This was especially since the men's team. There's been hints that they might be boycotting, which I think that would be the moment where. They- right. I mean, we neglected to mention that on, right. on Sunday night, an agent for a bunch of uh, NHL players tweeted that the the hockey team is considering boycotting their world championship, which uh, starts in May, in early May. Right. So they kind of brilliantly use this moment of leverage. Unfortunately, a rare one for women's hockey that the world championships are starting uh, this week and that those world championships are in the United States. But I guess I'm curious um, to button this up with you guys thoughts on if as, as at least I assume is going to happen, a deal is made this week. How do these issues get carried forward? Because the seems like the most likely or lot, not logical, but the most likely thing that'll happen is that a deal will get made. And then we just won't talk about U.S. women's hockey again. Which is really regrettable because I think that that's, that's the moment where, you know, I, I really want people to lift up the stories of women 
in sports when women in sports are not in peril. I think that that's when that's one of my favorite things about the Olympics is that that's when you see someone like Katie Ledecky or Simone Biles, and they're just the best at what they do. They're the best for anything, for anyone. Like Simone Biles is perhaps the greatest Olympic gymnast of all time. And I think that when these stories come up, I think it's worth mention. It's worth noting and worth mentioning that you know American women's hockey is a tremendous success story, despite their league, despite you know USA Hockey, and it's worth paying attention to even when nothing is going wrong. Sure, and I think the other thing we need to remember is that these big Olympic federations have a duty to support these sports. I mean, that's, you know, I'm not saying that you, that women's hockey is suddenly going to be on ESPN. I'm not going to, you know, we're not saying that these sports are going to suddenly generate audiences that are gigantic and that the athletes are going to get paid millions of dollars. Um, the reality is that they're not right now, but the, or, the groups that have the authority, the ability and the money to help support them and develop them over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, those are the ones that we should be targeting and thinking about. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When it launched in 2013, Fox Sports 1 was billed as the fun alternative to ESPN. They hired a couple of Canadian guys from the Canadian version of SportsCenter, which ends with an R-E instead of an E-R. And also Regis Philbin was involved. Remember that? He hosted oh, yeah. a show called Crowd Goes Wild. Uh, the Regis and Canadians approach did not go super well. And in April 2015, a bit less than two years after the network went on the air, Fox hired Jamie Horowitz the architect of ESPN's first take, that is the show where Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless shout a lot about LeBron James not having the clutch gene. Uh, he was hired to remake the network, which he did in large part by hiring the likes of Skip Bayless, Colin Coward, and Jason Whitlock. In a bunch of different interviews, Horowitz said he wanted to model FS1 after Fox News, which seemed like a pretty obvious signal that he was going to strap some shoulder pads onto Sean Hannity. But circa March 2017, as our colleague Ben Mathisoli wrote in a piece for Slate that is out this week, Fox Sports 1 is just as likely to air a bombastically left-wing opinion as a bombastically conservative one. Joining us now to discuss that piece is Ben Mathisoli, who despite lacking the clutch gene, has still managed to situate himself in front of a microphone. Hello, Ben. Uh, hi, guys. And yes, I'm, uh, I'm not who you want up in the, the bottom of the ninth. So Horowitz, you know, signs on to Fox. He tells many different publications that he wants to emulate Fox News. We've been working on this piece for a while, and I think we went in with the like not straw manish idea that this was going to be like Roger Ailes circa nineteen ninety six, and that he was going to try to create a conservative sports network. So. What have you seen in the last like year or so, Ben, as you've as you've watched it, and how is it different than uh, what you thought that we would be getting? Uh, right. So you know that I think we took him at his word, you know, uh, and he was quoted in in I think two different publications, and he gave a speech at uh, Williams College uh, that got that got picked up in which in which uh, Jamie Horowitz said, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna model this after Fox News. Fox News is." Uh, is proof that you can put opinion programming on the air and uh, and you can kind of make your name with opinion programming if it's if it's good enough if it pops enough and uh, so you know we started watching the show and, and it was at a I think this is this is mid 2015 so you know the the Trump the Trump campaign is kind of, is just getting started uh, when when Horowitz makes that statement and then obviously last year uh, uh, the campaign was uh, was on everyone's mind 
And so I kind of thought, like, is this going to be the the Trumpified, the Make America Great version of of uh, Sports Network? Is it going to be, you know, uh, hours of programming every day about how about how football players used to be tougher and concussions? You know, the science behind concussions isn't isn't quite settled. You know, I thought that was maybe what we were going to see, but. Um, but that's not not really what happened. Uh, there are several uh, strong liberal voices on the show, um, and even the the um, the gentleman that uh, that Horowitz brought in from ESPN, uh, Skip Bayless, Colin Cowherd, for example, uh, are not always um, you know they're not down line down the line conservatives. They're not they're not right wingers, and uh, and I think that uh, has uh, has has played out in some interesting ways in the in the last year. The uh, the point that you make in the piece that I thought was dead on is that. Instead of modeling itself after Fox News, what Horowitz has wound up doing is modeling uh, the network after Sports Talk Radio. Was, do you think that was a realization that, that came later, or do you think that was the plan all along? So, yeah, I think Horowitz, uh, I did, I talked to him for the piece, and, and uh, you know, one thing he said is, you know, it, it wasn't always just supposed to be Fox News. And, uh, and he said, you know, we also wanted to kind of model ourselves after Fox and FX. Uh, and, uh, and that was his way of saying, you know, we wanted to be bold. You know, he didn't necessarily mean Fox News as, as, as in right wing. He meant it as in, you know, very strong, uh, to put it one way, strong willed personalities. Um, and that, is a, an influence that comes from sports talk radio as well. I mean, you've got, uh, I think the peop- the person I mentioned in the piece is Jim Rome. Uh, his his catchphrase is "Have a take and don't suck." Uh, so, you know, he's he's about uh, being um, uh, about being provocative, not necessarily always about being right uh, or being justified or waiting until all the facts are in to make a decision. Uh, and that's kind of the ethos of, of a lot of sports radio is, uh, you know. The game's over. Okay, who should be fired? You know, like, like, let not like, let's sit around. Let's talk about. Uh, you know, maybe we we didn't uh, use enough cover two uh, against this offense, but like, this coach is an idiot. He's going to be fired. Like, that's the way sports talk radio filters reality, and that's kind of the way Fox Sports One does as well. Um, both in from right wing and from left wing, and then you know, a lot of sports issues can't be broken down into those perspectives. But the one thing that is always happening on Fox Sports One is someone is decisively stating a very declarative opinion about right. whatever just happened. I mean, but my, my thought is that perhaps the biggest hire wouldn't be necessarily um, Colin Cowherd. It would be someone like Gus Johnson because Gus Johnson actually does sports. And I think that that's something you get to in the article where you talk about how essentially they're building the entire plane out of first take. Because Fox Sports 1 does not have – the reason why ESPN is successful is not because of first take. It's because fo- it's because ESPN will pay someone a billion dollars to show their games. It, you know, ESPN is like, here you go, you know, SEC. We'll show SEC on, on ESPN, SEC on ESPN, then on ABC. And so when you've got – you know, I, I only watch Fox Sports 1 if it's related directly to a sporting event I want to watch or it happens to be that Gus Johnson's doing the Big East tournament because Gus Johnson will pass out at one of these times. Um, I think, you know, one of my favorite follows on Twitter, Richard Deitch, is always tweeting about how, you know, Skip Bayless gets fewer uh, fewer viewers than random children's programming or old episodes of MASH. And so do you think that Fox Sports 1 can ever really start rivaling ESPN without actually getting ESPN level sports? Um, definitely not. You're, you're totally right about that. Um, it's all about the live events. Um, and I think, uh, you know, without putting words in his mouth, I think Jamie Horowitz knows that. Um, and he, you know, when we talked, he, he kind of made a statement that, uh, that more or less conceded that in which he said, I think, uh, you know, our, our live events and our sign- signature purchase personalities are linked. And so what I speculate in the piece is that, you know, he's kind of using this buzz that he's generating. I mean, he, he, you know, my article is kind of evidence of this. You know, I, we wouldn't have been writing about Fox Sports 1 if they hadn't brought in these kind of controversial, buzzy, high-profile personalities. We wouldn't have been writing, well, gee, like, how, what's Fox Sports 1's afternoon NASCAR coverage and, uh, you know, UFC analysis show? How is that doing? You know, Slate's not going to write about that, which is those are the kind of things that we're on in the afternoon and in the morning uh, before Horowitz came in. And so so he's kind of raising the profile, you know, within the media um, in certain 
corners of social media, you know, as you mentioned with, you know, Deitch is uh, SI's media reporter and he's he's talking about Fox Sports 1, even if it's to disparage it. Um, it kind of puts puts them on the radar. But yes, absolutely. What they need to do is once they're on the radar, they need to get in there with their with a lot of money uh, and get the rights to, you know, regular season NBA or, uh, you know, uh, more playoff baseball. Like they, they absolutely that that's going to make them a competitor to ESPN right now. They're kind of an interesting, you know, an interesting side story, not a comp- not a competitor. All right. So you mentioned the Trump campaign and how that coincided with the Horowitzification of of Fox. The other thing, big event in sports and politics last year was Colin Kaepernick and his uh, kneeling during the national anthem. And that kind of made Fox more political or made its political takes um, more of a part of the daily mix than they would have been otherwise. Otherwise, you might have just had Colin Coward talking about Jimmy Garoppolo for three hours a day. But um, just so so folks have a sense, um, I want to play both sides of a conversation that you included in the piece, Ben. It's really interesting. So on the one side is Jason Whitlock, who has been I don't even know if I want to characterize Whitlock's views because uh, they're they're very interesting. So let's listen to Whitlock on Kaepernick and Tom Brady and who is more uh, righteous and true to himself. A lot of people are beating up Tom Brady, Robert Kraft and Belichick. They're friends with Trump. I know a lot of people and I can name some people in the media that were friends with Trump, played golf with Trump, mm-hmm. all all before he was president. Right. And so, again, if you were friends with him then, you should be friends with him now, and people shouldn't be running from him. Again, I don't have remotely a problem with Tom Brady. To me, he's the anti-Colin Kaepernick. He has his politics, and he's, handling, he's making it clear. What Obama then was down with, I wasn't with it. I'm going to hang here at Gillette Stadium. I'm down with Trump is with. We're still friends. I'm not going to back away from him, even though the media wants to put that pressure. He's making a statement. All right. And on that same panel was Chris Carter, former NFL wide receiver, who expressed extremely different views. You get to a certain status in life. I thought, well, you pick your friends and your friends don't pick you. So I don't know how Tom Brady, I don't care how he picks his friends. I don't care anything about his politics. But for me, it's important. At this stage of my life, who my friends are and what they mean to me and meaning by how they treat people, what they stand for. That's how I pick my friends. All right. Friends don't pick me. Now, I have associations. I have business relationships. Now, those are different. But they say that they're friends. Me, I pick my friends based on things that we might have in common and long term in life that we might have in common. So that's the only difference between myself and Tom. Do you think Tom? Okay, so yeah, so th- those two opinions kind of reflect what F has one has become. Um, you have uh, Whitlock, who's who that is the classic hot take, you know, bringing Brady and Kaepernick together, you know, kind of putting them into opposition with each other, which which they aren't really. Uh, you know, Colin Kaepernick doesn't comment on Tom Brady, and Tom Brady doesn't comment on Colin Kaepernick, uh, and you know, kind of making what I think is a, a kind of tendentious point about about. Brady standing up for himself in a way that Kaepernick didn't, because I, I think, you know, for better or worse, whatever you think of Kaepernick, I mean, he absolutely, he stood up for himself. He defended his views. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, he talked to anyone who wanted to talk to him about it. And he, and he spent lots of time answering questions. Uh, but then on the other hand, and, you know, this is what was surprising to me. You have Chris Carter, who, you know, I don't know much about Chris P- Carter's politics as a whole, but he's talking about Brady and making, I think, a very, it's a subtle point, um, especially by television standards. Uh, which is that, you know, who your friends are reflects who you are and their values reflect your values. And uh, he's kind of in- implying without actually uh, being too provocative about it or inflammatory. He's kind of making the point that, well, you know, Brady is representing Trump's values, whether he wants to say he is or not, by, you know, publicly avowing their friendship and and putting the, the Trump hat in his locker. Um, and so... You know, I, I, those are, those are two poles of, of the, of the question. Um, and you are going to see both of those kind of viewpoints represented on, on Fox News, or excuse me, on Fox Sports One. Uh, and, uh, a lot of people on FS1 defended Kaepernick. Uh, uh, Shannon Sharp, who is, uh, Skip Bayless's partner on the show Undisputed, um, was, was, was very, very, 
uh, I think, eloquent in, in defending Kaepernick's protest and just talking about the kind of the purpose of protest more generally um, and, and, and the conditions in America that, that uh, may have led Kaepernick to, to do what he did um, in a way that, that absolutely I wasn't expecting on, on, you know, any sports talk, much less the one that was, was supposed to be modeled after you know, uh, Fox News. And I, th- I think the, the conclusion that we can draw here is that you're not going to draw an audience from what you describe as the reasonable center. So Fox Sports 1 ends up being more like CNN. Um, and what's more important is More that like CNN and that you just like put a panel of people with the most extreme right. possible views. Correct. And instead of trying to come to a consensus, right. just have them You just put spout, Van Jones spout. and Jeffrey Lord in a room and go nuts. Right. And right. so it's not yeah. the conclusions that they make or the rightness of their takes, but the mere fact of them. Because what you want in sports, and I think Jamie Horowitz obviously is playing on this, is you want to foster fan division and antagonism. You know, Skip Bayless knows to some extent that what he's saying is bullshit. But he also knows that the public is dumb enough to want to hear him say that bullshit. Right. And I think the second point that I think is worth making here is that all of us, including Richard Deitch of Sports Illustrated, you know, all of us who analyze this stuff, maybe are missing the bigger point, which is that ratings don't matter quite as much in the social media age. Yeah, you need people to tune in so that you can charge money for commercials. But if the long game for Jamie Horowitz and Fox is to create a network that people are aware of because of all the takes. And then at some point, you're able to pry away the NBA or another NFL game onto your cable network. Then you've got something that has substance. Right. And I think that it's a really good point that it's not necessarily right-wing takes. It's as uh, what Deadspin calls speak for yourself, all takes matter. And that it just all takes all the time. And so – and I think that you make a really good point that I think we're all kind of playing into that, you know. When Jason Wicklock goes on some long rant about how LeBron James is a social justice warrior and I share it and add in the take, this is the stupidest thing I have ever seen in my entire life, Jason Whitlock somewhere is, I don't know, getting another five bucks. And I think that that's, I, that's the point, I guess, is to just infuriate and annoy. And so that, I mean, it basically is kind of like if you somehow combined what Rush Limbaugh does with what Air America tried right. to do and then turned it into a sports channel. Right. Because none of these guys is Sean Hannity, right? Right. There's no dangerous convictions here. But Ben, I think that a conservative sports network, like if Roger Ailes had been uh, a sports fan, I do think that there actually would be a market for that. And I think that, uh, you know, Jamie Horowitz is is probably smart for not um, trying to cater exclusively to that audience. But like when Clay Travis, whose stuff is licensed by Fox and he's the most like, you know, he talks about black privilege and he is, he's the most like ridiculously um, conservative personality in there. Whoa, 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 whoa. He says that he voted for Hillary Clinton. So it's okay. (laughs) He went to GW law and he could only practice law in the Virgin Islands. So let's just, you know, let's, let's keep our takes down. Stipulate all of that stipulated, but you know, like didn't Clay Travis say, on Twitter recently that he bet that if Fox gave him his own show, he would be able to beat Skip Bayless in the ratings. I actually totally believe, believe that, that that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, and you know, I think what, what Clay Travis is, he's in the politically incorrect space. Um, you know, and, and as we, as people have talked about with Trump, uh, uh, you know, Trump's politics are not necessarily right wing down the line, but what he does better than anyone in American history, unfortunately, is is just capture this idea uh, that people are upset that that society has gotten too politically correct. And that's that's kind of the same vein that that Clay Travis plays. Um, and he's very successful. He has a very, very loyal following, as far as I can tell, on his podcast, his Twitter account, um, his uh, his website. Um, and and yeah, and, and what that what what he does is he services that exact kind of reaction to it's it's people who are upset that ESPN gave Caitlyn Jenner um the Arthur Ashe Courage Award. Uh and there are a lot of those people. There Yeah, we haven't really upset. mentioned the background here that right. like if you look at right wing media, people are obsessed with the idea that ESPN is liberal and like putting progressive views down all of our throats. 
Yeah, I think Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, has actually tweeted about that. Um, it's definitely uh, it's definitely an idea that has a lot of currency on on right wing sites. That ESPN is is trying to, you know, in cahoots with the rest of the liberal elite, uh, indoctrinate us into 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 believing that that you know Caitlyn Jenner is okay, or or you know any or or that or Colin um, Kaepernick's right. That Colin Kaepernick's right that that uh, police officers are bad because they aired um, Chris Paul, LeBron, um, and Carmelo, um, you know, pro- do, doing a Black Lives Matter protest at the in the you know at the beginning of the ESPYS. You know that that because ESPN documents these things, that ESPN is is trying to indoctrinate in us, trying to indoctrinate us, um, and, and there is a significant backlash, uh, you know, big enough to support you know Clay Travis and and kind of lift lift the tide of that kind of like right-wing sports take um, environment. Though I would say that I think that really goes to ESPN's genius, that you could get people so angry about an invented award show that <laughs> in which the awards don't really matter or exist. <laughs> All awards matter. Yeah. <laughs> All awards matter. Uh, right, you know, the the controversy that the Arthur Ashe, uh, the ESPYs award didn't go to someone else that year, you know, oh, it was... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, next year, it'll go to Clay Travis. All right. <laughs> All right, Ben. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And I want you to stick around. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. This is the time in the show where we usually do After Balls. And After Balls will be back. Don't fret. But we're in our experimental phase of the podcast. We're sort of like trying to figure things out here. We're also kind of busy over the weekend. (laughs) Well, speak for yourself. I mean, all takes matter. Um, so I put out a survey on uh, Twitter and our Facebook page asking folks, who is the weirdest coach in history, history of any sport and why? And I did this because I knew Jane was going to be on the show. And I knew that the number one answer would be Jim Harbaugh. And I was, I was in fact, vindicated. Jim Harbaugh came on top. So we're going to do, do this in two parts. First will be... Um, discussion of Jim Harbaugh and his strangeness. The second will be family feud style, where I'll ask you guys to uh, guess who the other finishers and the top weirdest coach in history sweepstakes were. Um, let's start with you, Ben, since you're not in the studio with us and and can't revel in, in our camaraderie. I want you to feel included. <laughs> okay, what, thank you. What is your favorite episode of Jim Harbaugh weirdness, or how would you characterize his weirdness? Yeah, I think uh, the one that the one that immediately comes to mind is very timely, uh, which is that Jim Harbaugh turns out to be on some sort of advisory board for the Legal Services Corporation, uh, uh, which is uh, funded by the government and provides uh, legal services to uh, defendants who cannot afford them. Um, and in fact, uh, tweeted uh, recently um, uh, when uh, Donald Trump's uh, budget proposal leaked, uh, Harbaugh co- tweeted angrily about the um proposed cuts to the legal services corporation and i have to say i've been following his uh his work uh, harbaugh's work for the last several years and i that was really unexpected knew that, about uh, the khaki pants yeah, exactly knew about sleeping over at recruits houses knew about climbing <laughs> trees did not know about board being on the board of legal services corporation right yeah and there, there's this interview with him in politico and um you know he may he tra- he's still a football coach you know he knows he's he's representing uh, he has a lot of fans on both sides of the aisle, so he's very careful to say it's a bipartisan issue. But he he really truly does. You can tell in this political politico uh, interview. Um, you know, he knows his stuff. He 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 actually uh, explains the issues. Uh, I thought pretty well. And I think that that's the thing with Harbaugh. You know, as someone else who's been following Harbaugh's work extremely closely, like <laughs> you know, deadhead level closely. I think <laughs> that it's a performative weirdness. It's a mm-hmm. very much like. Jim Harbaugh in real life, if we, if you were to have a conversation with him in an actual environment, you would probably come up, you know, be like, okay, he's kind of intense, but he's not like talking to himself weird. And I think that <laughs> right. very much of like a lot of the things that are that seem super weird 
are mostly because he knows people will talk about them. Like he knows mm-hmm. that climbing a tree at a recruit's house or sleeping over or sh- dancing with Migos or showing up in a music video or something like that. That's all stuff that's going to, you know, to someone who's like 30, that's super weird. To someone who's 17, that's awesome. You know, and I think that that's something that it's well, a very – marketing to his audience. Exactly. Right? And so his audience is not necessarily us. His audience is not people who already think that college football is weird in yeah. a lot of ways because it is weird. His audience is like 17-year-old boys who also want to hang out with someone who is, you know, proven in the NFL and will eat, sleep, and breathe football, which is why I think that in a weird way he's very similar to Nick Saban. Nick Saban, who I think is very odd, mostly because I don't think <laughs> anyone should eat that much, that many Little W little snack Debbie. cakes yeah. and iceberg <laughs> lettuce. What? That's so weird. All right. Here's, here's some next-level shit for you, Ben. What if – Harbaugh is performing weirdness, but actually deep down, the fact that he does that is incredibly weird. Like he thinks that he's pretending to be weird, but he's in fact deeply, deeply weird. Um, I, Convincing? I, I'm I'm willing to buy that. Um, I actually have this is Josh. You sent me um, to um, to a, a camp in Paramus, New Jersey, to observe Harbaugh in person for a story that uh, you sent me to I, a camp. I, yes, I did. I did <laughs> For um, for a story that in fact got swallowed by by working on this uh, Fox Sports piece, um, and 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 it's funny what Jane was saying. I I got to see that exactly up close. So I, I showed up to this. Uh, it's a day long camp for high school football players, ranging from top level D one prospects to some of these kids were like four foot ten, fresh you know incoming freshmen. So you know you know five hundred kids at this camp, really just like a, a sports camp like you'd see anywhere in the country in the summer. Um, and so I, you know, I got to sit next to Harbaugh and kind of follow him around for, for the, for the day. Um, and he really did, there is absolutely a switch. You know, the, when the first time I saw him, he's sitting in a room with all the other coaches who are running the camp and they're going over just the extremely banal details of running a football camp. You know, okay, the running backs group is going to go here. Hey, who has the cones? You know, like, okay, uh, Frank has the cones, you know, like all that stuff. And, 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 he, and yes, he's, he's carrying out those kind of duties in, in a way that no one would find exceptional. But then he gets out into the gym. Uh, we walk over to the gym, uh, it, where all the kids are. Um, and the kids are excited, uh, because not only Harbaugh was there, but, um, you know, his brother showed up. Uh, Pat Narduzzi, the pit coach was there. There was like a lot of top college head coaches. Like this was a big deal for these kids. Um, a couple of the coaches, the other coaches get up and give kind of very, football rah-rah speeches um you know we're gonna go out there and work hard because hard work is how you win games blah 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 and harbaugh who up to that point you wouldn't have been able to to pick out as like the most famous or the most weird coach then harbaugh takes the mic and just you know completely transforms and gives this like has everyone stand you know standing by the end of his talk talking he's i think he was describing a racehorse and he got really into detail about how much his heart beats like a racehorse like that's in the gates for the Kentucky Derby and this hair stands up and that's how he feels every time he gets to gets to coach or f- play football and that's how he feels right now and that's how you should feel and I'm like I was ready to you know go out and just, Jane and is just on do some drills Jane's fanning herself and and yeah like he, he, it's absolutely like uh, you know and I think he, he he has a sense of humor and I think he knows that like people are going to get a kick out of this but but yeah at the same time like the fact that his mind could even go there to to think of like let me describe a racehorse's heart um, to these 16 year old kids On when we're basics. about to like go about to do like non-contact football drills in New Jersey like the 30th camp I've been doing you know like yeah. it, it is truly exceptional and weird that he can get that excited yeah. so, about so he's, he's either method actor or performance artist <laughs> it's yeah. Marlon either Brando way, or Miranda July right. either way greatest performances of our time and I think that <laughs> I think that that's really critical because I think that that is you know I, I used to think that like if you if you had to hang out with performative Jim Harbaugh all the time, like I don't know how he's married, I don't know how his children right. deal with him, but but then you realize that like okay, if he's an actual person a lot of the time, but then he gets sure. on Twitter and tries to start shit with Paul Feinbaum, which I recommend highly all the time, yeah. that is tolerable. And then I think that that links to um, we were talking about kind of you know the weirdest coaches, and I read can I we, can yes. I use that as a transition to phase two? Yes, definitely. Here's fa- phase two. Phase two is. I've got a list of other folks and people nominated. So Harbaugh is number one. Um, I've got a list of about 10. 
dudes here and you guys can play the all dudes you can you can play it's all dudes you can play the hang up feud in any way that you want jane no peeking at josh <laughs> i'm not screen, peeking i actually cannot right? see um so last week jeopardy this week family feud right so you can you can play it in one of two ways you can say who you think the weirdest coach is if you want to lose or if you want to try to win the game you could think of who the hang up audience would identify as the weirdest coach all right back to all the right. coast and family Okay. Um, okay. So I'll try and play it in two ways. So I think someone on that list would probably be Pete Carroll. And I think that that would m- mostly come from the 9-11 truth ring. <laughs> but I would – I think my personal choice, and I think this is linked you to – No, you get one true. You can't like – I could play that however one. I want. One. As long as I get two also. <laughs> yes. Everyone gets two now. This we is all the hang-up feud. There are different <laughs> rules. Go ahead, um, Jane. Don't listen to Stefan. So I think that I was reading a recent article that was talking about the fact that Bobby Knight talked about how he hoped everyone related with Indiana when he was there was dead or dying. And I think secretly Bobby Knight <laughs> mm-hmm. is actually one of the weirdest coaches because that is who he actually is. And it turns out he was just a sociopath this whole time. And you know, you read a great article where um, Indiana reporter, um, I think from the Indiana Indianapolis Star, was interviewing Dan Dockage and just being like, this is the first time when Dan Dockage, who played for Bobby Knight, realized like, oh, he is a terrible human being. I mean, he's <laughs> been a terrible human being for a really long time. But like the fact that he is no one wants to be around Bobby Knight. People do not like I, – I do not want to be around Bobby Knight. ESPN didn't want to be around Bobby Knight. Like right. they, they, Donald Trump wanted to be around good. Bobby Knight. I don't All think right. that he wants to did be around Did you pick someone now. by the way? She did. She picked <laughs> – I, I picked Bobby Knight. You picked Bobby Knight. OK. Bobby Knight is the number two answer on the yes. board yes. behind Jim Harbaugh. Um, Pete Carroll, what one person put Pete Carroll, which I, I guess we don't give you a strike for that if one person did. And their answer for why was – because he is a 9-11 truther and does not believe Stevie Wonder is blind. You so know, two for two. Is that true, the second part? <laughs> I don't know, but somebody said it, so I'm going to just repeat it. That's <laughs> that the is, journalistic standard on that this show. That is low-key the biggest internet rumor ever. Is. Is that oh, I love Wonder. the rumor. Yeah, oh, to be it's clear. fantastic. Love the rumor. Yes. All right. <laughs> Stefan Fatsis for the block. I'm going to mix my game shows here. Well. You got, I'm thinking like a hang up and listen listener. So I'm going to oh, yeah. rule out the managers, the crazy people from my long ago childhood, the Billy Martins, oh, the, yeah. the Woody Hayes's. They, they were all generally, genuinely crazy. So Stephen I'm going to go with buying, buying time. I like it. <laughs> Bill Belichick. All right. Let me go. Let me go into my spreadsheet. Definitely not one of the top answers for sure. Um, all right. Two people said Bill Belichick. Why? sociopath was one reason yeah. and the second was his press conferences are the longest running performance art pieces in history which fair point mm-hmm. all right so not the best performance Stefan, but this is the first was that a, up did i get a uh, sure. or is it on the board i mean it's not Do it's not one of the ding? top 10 it's not one of the top 10 answers but i don't want you to feel bad about yourself so there you go all right ben mathis lily who do you got I would like to point out that Bill Belichick was, I think, weirdly named out of nowhere in a New Jersey divorce lawsuit, uh, which I think, <laughs> you know, as as the other man uh, and considering his kind of like wardrobe and general meaner, mm-hmm. I think. It, does he or does he not is. believe Stevie Wonder is blind? <laughs> Bill Belichick's sexy temptress. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, for for the list, I think that um, I think that a very solid choice, uh, one that, that, that our, our listeners uh, would have would have thought about uh, would be uh, would be Les Miles. Um, and then for my own choice, uh, Ding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in a similar, uh, just playing to uh, Josh too. in a similar vein, uh, I'm going to go with, and this is maybe just the moment, uh, you know, everything else he does is, is pretty weird too. But the fact that Bo Pelini, uh, hard nosed, uh, football coach led Nebraska onto the field while holding his beloved cat <laughs> above his head, mm-hmm. uh, out of the tunnel. I'm looking at the picture right now, like charging out of the tunnel, holding a, a cat. That dude is weird. F- yeah. That's weird. Yeah. yeah. So that's going to be, my, that's my choice. All right. So Les Miles, we was definitely one of the top 10 on the board. The answers from the listeners were he eats grass, eats grass. <laughs> Eating grass and complete and utter disregard for clock management. Right. So doesn't I, really know the rules of football despite being a pretty good football coach for like 40 years. Like, I would say, though, that I would say, though, that I feel as if like Les Miles weirdness in like 2008 and Les Miles weirdness last year are two completely different things because he, he was not the Mad Hatter last year. His weirdness last year was just being like, huh, the forward pass. I'm not into it. <laughs> 
Like, so, the, that's weird. So, so it was five different people submitted less miles. And I think this is actually a good breakdown of like the different sections of less miles' brain. Three-fifths is devoted to eating grass. <laughs> One-fifth is clock management. How does that work? And the other fifth is just blank. No, they didn't, <laughs> they didn't submit an answer. All right. So here are the ones that you guys did not name. Bobby Valentine. Bobby Valentine. Bobby Valentine. He wore the mustache, the Groucho glasses, and snuck back into the dugout after getting ejected. Bobby Valentine, number three. Number four, and I was surprised and proud of the listeners for this selection, Jerry Glanville. Jerry oh. Glanville. Jerry Glanville. Former Falcons coach, wore, what were dressed the in all black. He, okay. the, the reasons, and maybe I don't do like a lot of security quote unquote for the survey. So maybe it was just the same person over and over again who was a big fan of Jerry Glenville, but leaving tickets at every game for Elvis. Um, also the way he dressed, the way he spoke, his weird game plans, and then all his strategic eccentricities, run and gun, his boyish media, media personality that makes Rex Ryan look meek. It's kind of surprising he didn't resurface as an XFL coach. True. All right, I'm going to run through the rest quickly. Yogi Berra, Rex Ryan, Diego Maradona, Mike Leach, Phil Jackson, Jerry Tarkanian, and Paul Westhead. And then I wanted to uh, give a shout out to the people that mentioned fictional coaches. Dennis uh, Hopper and Hoosiers was on my list. <laughs> my favorite one was Air Bud. Surely there is an Air Bud movie <laughs> where, a, where a wizened Air Bud coached his former team to glory, right? And then parentheses, I've never seen any Air Bud movies. <laughs> I really think the Rex Ryan choice, I think that's probably where I should have gone. I think that anyone yeah. who has a tattoo of their wife wearing the jersey of a player who no longer plays for them, that's <laughs> weird. Like that's – for one thing, that seems short-sighted and weird. All right. The the two that I had not heard of that are off the board but I totally uh, enjoyed learning about were Mirko Slomka, the coach of the German soccer club Hanover, who – sent his uh, players a 128-question uh, questionnaire with questions asking about their sexual interests. <laughs> and his explanation was, with this test, I know how I can best reach each player. <laughs> and the final one was Bill Shanahan, a debate coach at Fort Hayes State University, who during an argument with another debate coach, this is according to the Chronicle for Higher Education, dropped his pants in an extended <laughs> argument, and you can watch this on YouTube. That's a weird-ass coach. That's, that's, that's weird. Coach. Weird coach. Also a weird debate tactic. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to pop in to note that Bobby, Bobby Valentine did later become the safety director of Stamford, Connecticut. <laughs> We're making it a very solid choice for this. <laughs> that is true. All right, Ben, thank you uh, very much for joining us and playing the Hang Up uh, Feud. Jane, thank you, thank you for thank you thank you for being here and for also playing the Hang On Feud. And Stefan, I don't deserve any thanks. You're you're the best as always. We'd love your feedback and what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. And if you're looking for a recommendation for another sports podcast, there's one from the Panoply Network called Dirty Tackle. It's a soccer podcast. It's part of the Panoply Pilot Project where listeners can help decide which series get green lit. You can check it out at panoply.fm slash panoplypilots. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Listener.